As we prepare to read today, if you are in need of a Bible, please raise your hand. And if you do not own a Bible, you can keep this as a gift from Sojourn. Today's scripture is Philippians 2, 14 through 18. Please stand. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am about to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Sojourn. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn and just grateful to gather with you on this first Sunday of Advent. Uh, And we're going to continue on in our series in Philippians for the next few weeks. uh, And then we'll take a little bit of a break for that right before Christmas to dive into God's Word to talk about Christ coming to us. But as we dive into Philippians this morning and open up to Philippians chapter 2, let's go ahead and ask the Lord to bless our time in His Word Father, we come into your presence this morning with singing, and we've been gifted with that today, to lift up our voices in praise to you, to acknowledge your presence, to acknowledge your greatness, to acknowledge your glory. Reminded this morning, God, that you are not a distant God who remains separated from us, but you have come to us. And during this season of Advent, we recognize that, the longing that your people would have had for the Savior to come, and the longing we now have for Him to come again. And so Lord, as we open up your Word this morning, I pray that we would be instructed by your Word, that you would teach us, that you would grow us, that you would speak to us, and that you would help us to be attentive to what you have to say to us today. God, help us to receive what you have for us just for ourselves and and not think about how it applies to the person next to us or someone else that we know that might need to listen to this, but we would heed your word today knowing that your Holy Spirit takes your living and active word and speaks to us directly. So Lord, we submit ourselves to you this morning and we ask that you'd be honored, you'd be glorified, and you would get all the praise. We pray all this in Christ's name, amen. You know, it's kind of crazy, at least to me, that it's already December. I I feel like this year, in some ways, has flown by, and in some ways, it's kind of dragged on. I kind of forgot that we had an Olympics earlier this year. Uh, So it's been a a strange 2018, Uh, but as I think about this year being that the end of the year, we're in December, it made me actually think about graduating from college, because I graduated from college in December. I know some of you are getting ready to graduate, and that's you. Congratulations. Uh, For me, that was 16 years ago. Uh, And so I recognized, okay, that was 16 years ago. Man, next year I have my 20-year high school reunion. So when I think about that, time really has flown by. But whether you're in high school or college right now, or you were in high school or college a really long time ago, I'm sure all of us remember doing compare and contrast writing assignments. Maybe it was your English class where you had to write a paper to compare and contrast something or an essay in your American history class, but generally those assignments kind of go this way. 
compare how X person and X person or X event and X event are the same, but also note their differences. Contrast the differences between the two. To compare and contrast, we take two people or two events or two things, we place them next to one another, and we look at them and we analyze them. And while this is a common assignment in school, we still do it all the time in our lives. In sports, we can say things like, how is this team this year the same as or different than the team that won the championship last year? There's a fantastic song by one of my favorite artists, Propaganda, called Thank You, Mr. President, where he compares and contrasts Andrew Jackson and Nelson Mandela. And we do this all the time when we get a new supervisor. How is he or she different than my previous supervisor? We're placed on a new team at work or at a new school. We do it when we meet our new neighbors. Are they the same as or different than our previous neighbors? We do it when we go to a new grocery store. We do it pretty much in all areas of life. We're constantly comparing and contrasting things. And so knowing that that's our natural human way to interpret the world that we live in, as we dive into our text today, what we're going to see is that Paul gives us a strong and clear command, and his command and exhortation can be summed up in this way. As you follow Christ in a world that is set, apart from, or set against Christ, as you follow Christ in a world that's watching you live as a contrasting community, But what's interesting, though, is what Paul actually zeroes in on for the Philippians and for us as a local church. My hope today is that God would use this text to bring about conviction in your life, that he would use this text to bring about repentance wherever that's needed in your life, that he would use this text to bring about a zeal to live out our lives as the called out ones that we are, citizens and saints of the kingdom of God living as sojourners in a foreign land. And my hope today for those of you who are not yet followers of Jesus is that you will see the sweetness of what it means to know God and to be a part of his people, to be a part of the church. See, this isn't about organized religion. It's about a vital relationship with the living God and with one another. And so let's dive into Philippians 2 once again this morning and may God bless the preaching of his word. You know, all of Philippians 2 so far has been uh, really just a a life-shaping, foundational kind of text for us as we really take to heart what God says to us in Philippians chapter 2. And if we take those things and we seek to plant them deep within us, hoping, believing that God might produce a changed life in us by His grace and power. And so today's text continues right along with that. In fact, if we're really going to make sure that we understand what it is that Paul is calling us to in this text, we have to see it connected to what he's already said and written in Philippians 2. Last week, we looked at verses 12 and 13, and we saw this call to progressively be sanctified by God, to gradually become more and more like Jesus. And Paul called us to do that by working out our own salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it's God who works in us. It was a call to keep obeying Jesus, as God works in us to make us more like Jesus. And so, what we see in our text today, the command that Paul gives us is an aspect of working out your salvation. It's a way for you to live like a saved person. It's a way for us to live like a saved 
community, people who have been rescued from the darkness and death of sin by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, people who have been restored to a right relationship with our holy, awesome, gracious, mighty God. And the aspect of obeying Jesus that Paul focuses on here is how we live with one another in the midst of a world that lives only for itself. So he declares, verse 14, do all things. Now we can just stop right there for a minute because I want to make sure that we don't overlook the significance of what Paul is saying. Do all things. All means all. There are no exceptions. It's not saying again that there's some you know, 90, 95%, 99% of your life. That's what I'm talking about. But there's this little caveat area which doesn't apply. No, all means all. Paul tears down, even in this statement, the idea that there's a separation between the sacred and the secular in your life. All of life is lived before God. So in other words, he says, every single thing that you do, do them though without grumbling or disputing. And what do we mean by those words? Grumbling is whispering complaints, talking in secret against someone, and making negative comments about others behind their backs. Disputing is arguing or quarreling or debating in ways that are divisive and raise doubts. And so what we learn here is really important for us for a whole lot of reasons, but it's critical for us if we are going to be a contrasting community. See, something we need to understand is that our grumbling, our complaining, our disputing, our arguing isn't just a personal thing. It's not something that just kind of resides within us. It doesn't affect anyone else. What we need to understand is that these are dysfunctions of relationships, When you grumble, when you complain, when you dispute, when you argue, it's always in relation to someone else. You made me think, well, maybe there's certain things where that's not the case. What about traffic? I mean, nobody likes that, and a lot of us probably grumble about it. But we do recognize that when we grumble about traffic, we're grumbling about the people that are in the cars that are in our way, as if the world revolves around us and they woke up this morning just to cause us to be late to work. You may say, well, what about this area? I mean, sometimes I just don't like Northern Virginia. But when you grumble against Northern Virginia, I don't think you're grumbling against a landmass, right? Like this area that we live in and where we're sitting has been here for a really long time. I don't think you're like, well, I don't like this piece of soil that I'm on. No, when we grumble against Northern Virginia, we grumble against the culture of Northern Virginia. We have to recognize there is no culture apart from the people that live here, including you, including me. Okay, wait a minute. What about the weather, though? We can can grumble against that, right? I mean, we can complain against that. That's not really in relation to anyone. Well, maybe climate change. Just leave that there. Or more importantly, regardless of what you think or believe about that, that's someone else that you could be grumbling against, that you could be complaining against. It could just be God, who's sovereign over every aspect of our creation, including the weather. See, what Paul's focusing in on here, what he's calling our attention to is this idea that our complaining and our disputing, what he's most concerned about is against God and one another. And if we're honest, it comes pretty naturally to us. 
It's not difficult for us to be grumblers. It's not difficult for us to be complainers. It's much harder to not be. See, Paul has exhorted us to submit ourselves to Jesus as Lord and to keep obeying Him as Lord in all of life, that you would see every aspect of your life come in and under the submission of Christ being Lord. But sometimes we complain and grumble about the life that Jesus calls us to. And sometimes we grumble and complain against the people Jesus calls us to live this life with. See, if we're honest, we hear the call of Christ. He tells us to take up our cross and follow Him. And we can read that in the text and we can hear that in a sermon and say, sure, Jesus, like, yeah, I'm, I'm all in. But then there are those moments in life when there's an actual call to sacrifice. To lay down your rights. To lay down your wants and your desires for the sake of others. For the sake of saying yes to Jesus. And in those moments, life can be legitimately hard, legitimately difficult. So let me ask you, are there things in your life right now that Jesus has called you to that you're grumbling about? Are there things in your life right now that Jesus has ordained for you to walk in that you find yourself grumbling about? Now let me make an important distinction here. Grumbling is different than groaning. Grumbling is different than groaning. If we look at a text like Romans chapter 8, we see the Apostle Paul tell us that we are in this midst of suffering, in the midst of brokenness, in a fractured world, that sin has affected us and it's, it's messed up our relationship with God. It's messed up just the reality of our world that we exist in. And he says that even creation itself groans along with us for redemption, for Christ to make all things new. And so there's a, there's a reality to groaning. It's right for us to groan in a world that's fractured, to long for our suffering to end. It's okay for us to say, God, how much longer? When will this end? God, I long for this to be over. I don't want to be in the midst of this. That's a, a holy groaning. That's part of what we should do even during this season of Advent. And we find ourselves in this place of this now and this not yet that Christ has come. That's what we celebrate during this season of Advent. But as we sing songs like, O come, O come, Emmanuel, or Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, that's not just about looking back to when Christ came the first time, but longing for Him to come again, to end all of our suffering, to end our groaning. And some of you right now are rightly groaning. And we as a church family groan with you. But what Paul is calling us not to do is not to grumble. Why? Because when we grumble against God, when we move from a place of groaning to grumbling, we are right back to the problem we highlighted a few weeks ago. And it's why this text connects back with the beginning of Philippians chapter 2. When we grumble against God, we've forgotten our creatureliness. And we start to believe that we could do a better job of running our lives than God does. It's just another manifestation of pride. God, if you would just let me take the reins of my life. God, if you would just let me sit on the throne of my life. If I could just be king for a day, I could do this so much better than you. Hannah Anderson, again in her book, Humble Roots, speaks to this. She said, pride blinds us to God's good gifts. 
because pride convinces us that we are more significant than we really are, it also convinces us that we deserve a certain experience of the world. And when something disrupts that, our pride reveals itself by complaining. And so in those moments, we start to believe that God is holding out on us. And that God doesn't really care about us, that he doesn't really love us, that he doesn't have our best in mind, and we can start to shake our fists at God. When we grumble against God, we aren't giving glory to God. But it's not just that we're not giving glory to God, we're actually stealing glory from him. Because in the midst of our complaining and our grumbling against him, we're actually focused only on ourselves. So where might there be grumbling in your life right now? Have you been tempted to move from groaning to grumbling? I find this in my own life as I think about my life that a place that I often grumble is just with my children and how they're behaving and how I want them to be and how they're disrupting the way that I think things should be in our home at times. And I find myself not in the midst of wanting to lovingly correct them and help them become more like Jesus and understand their need for him. I just want them to stop doing whatever it is they're doing. So I can groan and complain and provoke anger instead of pointing them to our Savior. Maybe for you, your health isn't what you want it to be. Maybe for you, it's similar to me that your kids aren't acting like you want them to be acting. Maybe your marriage isn't where you had hoped it would be at this point. Maybe your marital status isn't what you would have hoped or planned for your life right now. Maybe your career trajectory isn't panning out. Maybe your finances aren't as high as you'd like them to be. Where are you grumbling against God? Wherever it is, whatever it is, I want you to stop and I want you to put a spotlight on it. Maybe you need to write it down on your notes this morning and just write that word down and that phrase down that comes to mind for you that the Holy Spirit is impressing upon you right now where you know you're grumbling against the Lord. Put a spotlight on it. And then as you do that, I want you to acknowledge whether it's a megaphone grumble or a whispering complaint, that you would acknowledge that in that you are declaring that you know better than God does. But as you shine that spotlight on it, I also want to encourage you to repent. Repent knowing that it is God's kindness that leads you to repentance. And he has made clear in the pages of this book, and if you are in Christ, in the depth of your spirit-filled, believing heart, that he is good. And he's faithful. And he will never leave you or forsake you. He has communicated to us and made clear to us that he's committed to you and his glory in you, and that will never change, even if you don't understand the what and the why of your life right now. Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, succinctly said it this way, God will only give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. God will only give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. Now, I know that can be hard to wrap your mind and heart around because we have finite minds and fickle hearts. But that's true because God is true through and through. He is faithful and he loves you and he made that abundantly clear to you when he sent his son to rescue you. That you were an enemy of God 
going your own way, and He sought you out. He displayed His love for you. For God so loved the world that He sent His only Son. We can look to Jesus and see the faithfulness of our God, even if we don't understand everything that's going on in our life. But our grumbling and complaining isn't just directed towards God, and that's not all that Paul is concerned about. Sometimes we grumble and complain against others, and I would say in particular those we're in community with within the church. And Paul adds to this this idea of disputing or debating one another in a way that causes division. We know that he's called us to unity, to have the same mind and the same love, but when we start to look at one another with disdain or disgust or disappointment, and we can start to think, Jesus, why these people? Like, couldn't you have called me to a different group of people? And an unfortunate thing for us, I think, in the midst of our 2018 culture, it's, it's this kind of tension, right? There's, there's lots of churches we could go to and be a part of. And that's good because the gospel is being preached. But man, it's super easy for you in the midst of your grumbling to just get up and walk out. We have to realize that the church at Philippi was the church. There was no other church to go to. No other people to gather with. And so when you were grumbling or complaining, having that disappointment and disgust with those people, it would be, God, why these people? Couldn't you put me in another city? Why'd you save them? This would be so much easier if this was a different group. Or maybe we start to share this disdain and disgust and disappointment with others in community. Because we don't like something someone else is saying. We don't like something someone else is doing. Whether that's a pastor in your church or a a leader or another member of the church. If we start to do that, then we're certainly not on the path to unity, but to division and disunity. Let me read our definitions again. Grumbling or whispering complaints, talking in secret against someone and making negative comments about others behind their backs. The disputing is arguing, arguing, quarreling, debating in ways that are divisive and raise doubts. <clears throat> we need to understand that grumbling and disputing are deadly for community and mission. Deadly for what God has called us to. Deadly for what He's called us to be with one another. They're deadly because when we complain and argue, we're distracted. We're not focused on what God has for us, what he's calling us to walk in and how to be faithful to making much of him where we are. And so brothers and sisters, are you tempted towards this with someone in this church right now? Grumbling, disputing. Are you tempted towards this with any pastors or leaders in this church? Listen, we are called to exhort one another in Christ. When we see a brother or sister around us that's struggling with sin, that's, that's being tempted to walk away from Jesus or kind of set Jesus aside, we, we're, we're called to exhort one another. It's a part of the gift of community. We need one another. I can't always see the blind spots in my life. I, I need to be exhorted. I need to be encouraged in Christ. I, I need to because sin is deceitful. That's the gift that God's placed us in community with one another. And we could even say that we're called to give Christ-like criticism to help each other in love become more like Jesus. But as we look through the pages of Scripture, there is no mention of a spiritual gift of criticism. Nowhere in these pages does God say, you need to be, God, I've actually called you to be that person that's just going to constantly criticize to keep people humble. 
There is no spiritual gift of criticism and grouchy grumbling is not a mark of redeeming grace. And if you spend more time talking about someone than you do talking to them, you are not honoring the Lord. That is not living a Christ-like life and I exhort you to repent and go ask forgiveness. To grumble and complain and argue, whether it's with Jesus or the people Jesus has called us to do life with, it, it puts you more in line with the rebellious wilderness generation that did not enter the promised land than it does with Jesus. And so Paul here is trying to tie all of these aspects together for us in light of the context of Philippians 2. He's making the point that saved people, spirit-filled people are not marked by grumbling and disputing. Those are self-focused things. No, saved people, rescued by Jesus, spirit-filled people made alive in Christ are marked by humility and sacrificial love. In other words, how we live before God and how we live with one another will look different when we're following Jesus as Lord. But what we learn in verse 15 is that the reason that Paul says this isn't simply for our own benefit. And the reason Paul says this isn't even just for the health of our community. All those things are true. The reason Paul says this is because the world is watching you. Look at verses 14 and 15 again. <clears throat> and Paul says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. The beginning of verse 15 gives us a contextual clue. As followers of Jesus, we are called not to grumble or argue for a reason that we should be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. What Paul isn't saying is that we'll be perfect in this life. What Paul isn't saying is that we're always going to get this right. It's not what he's saying, but notice where he places this. He says we are to do this because we are in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. This is really important for us to understand. When the world looks to disparage the name of Christ, when it looks to tear down Jesus and his gospel, it looks to the sins and shortcomings of his people to do so. And man, we sometimes give the world plenty to do that with. When Paul says to be blameless, innocent children of God without blemish, he isn't calling us in our behavior to become children of God. He's declaring that's already true for you. And so what I'm calling you to is to give evidence that you're a child of God, to reflect his nature, to reflect his character, to show and display that our redeeming God has actually redeemed us and is renewing us to look more and more like our Savior. This is a matter of fact, it's an outworking of the good news of the gospel in our lives. We saw this last week. True children of God, those who have been redeemed by Jesus, will increasingly and progressively be transformed to look more and more like Jesus. God is committed to your holiness, which means that true children of God will look strikingly different than the rest of the world. And that's Paul's point. The world we live in, it grumbles and complains and argues and disputes all of the time. 
It comes naturally for us to do that. And so we can turn on any news station, we can read any article, we can look on social media, and we constantly see this idea of grumbling and complaining and arguing and disputing over all kinds of things. But Paul's point is, is as followers of Jesus, we are not of this world. And so how we live in love by nature looks different than the world. Because the world we live in is crooked and twisted. It's bent and broken. It's upside down and backwards from the God's design and the way things were meant to be. And this is a point we really need to understand. The context that you and I are called to live in as redeemed followers of Jesus, as citizens of the kingdom of God, is not separate from this world, but in the midst of it. God didn't save you and bring you into his kingdom and kind of put you on a a compound or a a gated community where you can be removed from the rest of the world. No, he left you to be in the midst of the world for a reason. The Apostle Peter speaks to this. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. He says, very similar to what Paul says here, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, people who's recognizing that this place is not your home, he says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Don't live like the rest of the world, Peter says. Be on guard. But then he says this, keep your conduct, the way you live among the Gentiles, those that don't yet know Christ, keep your conduct amongst your neighbors honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. This goes right along with what Paul says next. In the midst of that crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. The world, a dark and dying world that needs the hope and the grace and the resurrecting power that only Jesus brings. See, how we live and love one another matters because the world is watching us as it should be. As it should be. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10 says that it's the church that makes known the manifold wisdom of God. It's the church that reflects God's glory. It's the church that displays what a changed life looks like. It's the church that shows that when Jesus invades your life, he changes everything about you. We're called to be a contrasting community. We're called to be in the world, but distinct from the world. When we strive to live before God and with one another in humility and sacrificial love, there is absolutely nothing the world can speak against us. I think this is a line in the sand call for the American church. Are we distinct or not in how we trust God and love one another in the way the rest of the world operates? And while this is a line in the sand call and command for the American church, we can't change the whole American church, but we can change our church by God's grace and by God's power. So let me ask us, are we distinct or not in how we trust God and love one another? We live in polarizing times, but the church that is willing to lay down its rights and privileges for the sake of another the church that's willing to love others more than they love themselves, the church that is willing to sacrifice even their very lives so that others might know and experience the redeeming grace of God, the church that is striving to follow Jesus in every aspect of life 
follow him alone as king, this church should not contribute to the polarization, but instead confound it by offering a different way, a better way, by offering the way of Jesus. When we strive to do all things without grumbling or disputing, we immediately set ourselves apart from the way the world operates. And that's how we can shine as lights in a dark place. When even an inkling of light comes into a room that is completely dark, the contrast is immediate because darkness is the absence of light. And so it doesn't matter how pale that light is. It doesn't matter how soft that light is. It's noticeable. And so as we strive to be light in the midst of darkness, we don't do so for our own glory, our own accolade. The light we have is derivative light. Like the moon to the sun, we just reflect the glory of Christ. And we do so for the praise of him, our king. And I think that's why Paul says what he says next. As we shine as lights in a dark world by not grumbling, by not disputing, we do so by holding fast to the word of life. By holding fast to Jesus. In John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, the Apostle John, speaking about Christ, says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything that, ma- that, ma- anything that was made. Sorry, let me read that again. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him, in Christ was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. If you are going to be faithful to Jesus, if you are going to be faithful to the life he calls you to, then you must hold fast to Jesus because apart from him, you can do nothing. It is by holding fast to Jesus that you're able to live a life of joy and not grumbling or disputing. See, when you see the word of life as just that, as you see it as life, When you don't see this, God's word to us, speaking of Christ as information to be believed or information to be argued over or something to hammer one another with, to win out and say, I'm right and you're wrong. When you see it as life to weary souls in a dry and weary land, then you long for it. And you're quick to offer it to one another as balm for our wounds and not use it as a weapon with which to wound this isn't about upholding truth for truth's sake. It's about uphold, uh, holding fast to the gospel so that others might hear it and others might believe it. And like the star over Bethlehem leading foreign kings to the newborn Savior King, we too can be like that star shining and showing people to Jesus, holding fast to him in order to show the world his worth. I think that's why Paul says what he says in the rest of verse 16. He's exhorting the church is exhorting us but then he says this statement and he makes it personal again he's basically saying even if i lose my life for the sake of christ even if i get poured out for you and am executed for the sake of your discipleship i don't want it to be in vain i want to know it was worth it because you're holding fast to jesus and in that he can rejoice and in that we can rejoice Because see, what should be a distinguishing mark of followers of Christ, people whose lives have been and are being radically changed by His grace, is not complaining, not disputing, but rejoicing. Rejoicing. 
regardless of the loss of all things, because we are striving to faithfully follow Jesus and make him known to our neighbors and the nations. But as we do that, we need to understand that our evangelism, our seeking to preach the good news of Christ, will be completely meaningless if our life together doesn't reflect the image of God. Our evangelism will be completely meaningless if our life together doesn't display his recreating activity brought about by the grace of the gospel, which we're trying to share, that it really matters, that it really means something to know Christ and be transformed by him. See, when we are a truly contrasting community because of Christ, we can also be an attractive community. Our our world that we live in, we're, we're constantly surrounded by people and we're, we're constantly surrounded by the appearance of relationships through things like social media, but we are lonelier than we've ever been before. A lot of sociologists are saying that we're even, there's kind of a loneliness epidemic going on. Our world longs to be fully known and fully loved. People all around us, your neighbors, your coworkers, they long to be known to the depth of who they are, but in being known, they want to know that they'll be loved and accepted and cared for and not pushed away. It's a longing of every human heart. But see, Jesus' people are able to be that place, that people, that family where that's possible, not because we have it all figured out. Man, we're a mess. Not because we have it all figured out, but because Jesus sits on the throne of our lives because we're striving not to be complainers, because we're striving not to be arguers, but be friends and brothers and sisters who love God and love others more than we love ourselves. When we take all that Paul has said in Philippians chapter 2, when we apply it to our lives by God's grace and power, we will be a bright, distinct light in a dark world that will cause people to say, I want what you have. I want what you have into which we can confidently declare what we have, we have only because of Jesus. Welcome. Come. Meet our Savior. Be a part of our family. And my hope for our church is that we would be known more in Fairfax for our genuine love of God and one another than what or who we stand against. And in doing so, we would prove that we are indeed disciples of Christ. To close, I want to just give you four things I would encourage you to do this week, four points of application that you can take and you can pray through and journal about as you seek to live this out. And I would say even especially during this season of Advent, when you're thinking about longing for Christ to come again. They all start with R, thanks to my wife. So here are these four things. The first one is just to repent. Repent. Are you grumbling and disputing in relation to God or others? Are you marked more by a critical spirit than you are by kindness, gentleness, and love? If that's where you're at, turn away from your sin and turn to Jesus. Ask him to change your heart and your life. So repent. And the second thing that I want to call you to as a point of application is to remember. In the midst of your repentance, remember that you're a child of God. He is your good father and he's not withholding anything good from you. Remember who you are in Christ and all that you have in Christ which can enable you to be content in the midst of your life. 
which we're going to talk more about in Philippians chapter 4, but contentment is the opposite of complaining. And you can do this as you spend time in God's word and you reflect on all the riches you have in Christ. You take time to write down and remember the many blessings you have in Jesus. If nothing else, that you've been rescued from darkness and death, which is of an infinite value. So repent and remember. Third, reflect. As you take your eyes off yourself and place them more on the greatness and grandness and gloriousness of your gracious God, you can reflect his glory to the world around you. As you repent and remember and acknowledge the fact that you don't get it all right all of the time, that sometimes you struggle with grumbling and complaining, but that's why you need Jesus. You can rest in the contentment and the loving kindness of God towards you in Christ. It's in those moments that you can shine brightly into the lives of those around you still in darkness and invite them to Jesus. One small thing that we're seeking to do in our lives with some other sojourners here is we're having a a community group that's very neighborhood-focused. There's several families that all live just a few streets away from one another, and we're seeking to intentionally engage our neighbors. And so one of the things we're doing is we're having a, a community group Christmas party. We're calling it a holiday happy hour. And we're just inviting our neighbors, 30 or 40 different people all around us, saying, come over, hang out with us. And see how we interact with one another and come be a part of our lives. We want to be a part of your life too. And so we're inviting them over to our house. One of our neighbors that we've been reaching out to for the last several years that doesn't yet know Jesus but sees Jesus in us and sees Jesus in our community, we told her that we're doing this community group in our neighborhood that is just a bunch of our neighbors getting together. And she said, when can I come? I want to come and be a part of that. She still rejects our Christ, but she sees Christ in us, and she's attracted to that. And we can reflect the glory of God when we take our eyes off ourselves and set them on him. So repent, remember, reflect, and then forth, and let's just rejoice together. Rejoice and give thanks that even if God never gives you the pleasures of this world, you can still be glad and rejoice for all God has done and is doing and will do in you and through you, knowing that he's faithful and will bring you all the way home. Brothers and sisters, as we strive to live in unity with one another, a unity that's rooted in humility, a unity that's rooted in sacrificial love, may our grumbling cease. May our disputing and arguing cease. And may we be a contrasting community in a world that desperately needs the one who redeemed us and made us a family together. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. As we come forward to take communion this morning, we're reminded of the truth of Romans 8.32. The Apostle Paul, talking about the midst of the brokenness of our life and the now and the not yet of our reality, says this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Friends, in Christ you have been made rich. In Christ you have eternal life. In Christ you've been adopted into the family of God. And so as you eat the bread this morning, a picture of Christ's body broken for you. As you drink the cup, a picture of Christ's blood shed for you. Lay down your grumbling at the feet of Jesus. Lay down your disputing at the feet of Jesus. If you need to go to someone in this room this morning and ask for forgiveness, go and do that this morning, even before you take communion. 
Lay it down at the feet of Jesus. He has set you free from that. And then rejoice in the grace of God. Rejoice in the gift of the family around you that he's given you to help you become more like Jesus, to live a faithful life. You and I cannot do this alone. This meal in and of itself is a display of our contrasting community of light and darkness. Because as you eat that bread and you drink that cup, you declare with your body your desperation for Jesus and your new life in him. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm so glad that you're here this morning. I hope that you see a picture of what it means to be a part of the family of God. But we would just ask you not to come forward and take communion because your declaration isn't yet Jesus and only Jesus. But we want it to be. So just hang out in your seat. If you're ready to start a relationship with Christ, even if you don't know entirely what that all looks like, but you know you need him, just tell God that. And then let somebody around you know that so we can walk with you and help you understand and know what it looks like to know him and follow him. For those of you that will come forward, you can come to the tables at the front or the tables in the back. Tear off a piece of bread. Take a cup to drink. And what Christ, your Savior, who has come to us as a baby to live a perfect life for you, to die on the cross for you, what he's done for you will be spoken over you this morning. Let's pray. Father of mercy, we come before you this morning and we just ask that you'd forgive us. Would you please forgive us for our grumbling? Would you please forgive us for our disputing, for our complaining, for our arguing? God, we need your transforming grace. We need your help. We can't root that out of our lives on our own. We need you. So God, would you help us in the midst of acknowledging where we're trying to be more like you, where we're complaining about the people you've put in our life, where we are more comfortable criticizing than we are encouraging. God, would you help us? Would you transform us? Would you help us to cling to the word of life, Christ our Savior? God, we need you to help us. Help us to be a church that's marked by humility and sacrificial love. Help us to be a church that is a contrasting community, light in a dark world. And God, I pray that as we seek to live faithful lives before our neighbors, before our coworkers, before our family, before our friends, that they would see Christ in us, be attracted to that, and that you would bring them into this family. God, would you bring a revival and awakening? Would you awaken the hearts of dead men and women and bring them to life in the name of Christ? And help us to be faithful to proclaim him to our neighbors and the nations. We thank you for your grace. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Come forward whenever you're ready.